Welcome to NFCC's Guide Through the Seasons of Mental Wellness. I'm your host, Anna Crane, a licensed social worker and outreach counselor at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center here in Houston, Texas. I'm so glad for you to join us for season three, where we talk about all things healing. Let's get into today's episode. Morgan Welch is a fellow IVF warrior with a passion for helping others navigate the emotional, personal, and practical realities of the often overwhelming process of trying to conceive. Over the course of a five-year battle, she endured over a dozen fertility treatments, suffered from three miscarriages, and by the grace of God, delivered twin boys on Christmas Day in 2021. With an unexplained fertility diagnosis for four of the five years, she made it her mission to immerse herself in all things trying to conceive, to try to uncover any inkling of hope that would help her and her husband have their beautiful family. She's tried everything under the sun to make her dreams of motherhood possible, from beet juice to acupuncture, holistic and functional medicine approaches to invasive and controversial IVF protocols that included immunosuppressant drugs, and others. You name it, she probably tried it. And now it's her mission to help others navigate the tumultuous road of infertility and pregnancy loss. She wants others to feel supported, seen, and heard, and believes that by sharing her story, others might feel less alone during this isolating journey. Welcome, Morgan. We're so excited to have you here. And Morgan and I are actually best friends, and it has been such a wonderful thing to have such a warrior alongside me. I had my own fertility journey, and so I'm just so excited for her to be here today with you guys to tell her story. So Morgan, I would love for you to share your journey with us and tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on this podcast. My infertility journey is a long one. I had roughly around five-year journey from start to finish. Um, We have twin boys, so I don't want to spoil the journey, but we were blessed (laughs) with twin boys at the end of it. So we'll start with something positive. But I followed a pretty typical route to trying to conceive. My husband and I, Peter, did their basic one year of trying with under the supervision of our OB. Most OBs don't like refer you out to specialists until you've done a full 12 months of trying on your own. So that's kind of where we jump started our trying to conceive journey. And then from there, did your basic testing of egg quality, semen analysis, Um, making sure your tubes weren't blocked, that type of stuff. And everything checked out pretty fine. So they sent us to a reproductive endocrinologist and we followed the traditional path that you do at a reproductive endocrinologist. So we did the IUIs at first and I was at that point pretty naive to the entire process and thought, okay, we finally got in to see the doctor that's going to help us make a baby. And I thought, bam, first IUI, we're going to have a child at the end of this. Well, and I think a lot of people think that. I think that, you know, the, and there are people who that is their experience, right? Like I know that I know plenty of people who are like, oh, we did IUI one time and we have our beautiful baby and that's great, right? You've just had a, a different experience as did I. And yeah. I think that when we start the process, so many of us are so naive, like you said, to just like, I'm just going to do a medicated cycle and then I'm going to, okay, that didn't work. I tried Clomid, that didn't work. Then I'll do IUI. So after your IUI experience, then what did you guys do? Yeah. So like one of the things that I say to a lot of people that come to me and ask for support is I'm like, Clomid is the gateway drug 
to infertility drugs because like you usually go to your OB, they put you on Clomid. And then like, if that doesn't work, then they're like, okay, maybe you have a bigger issue. And they send you on your merry all way. And you're like, so naive at that point. And you're right. Like there was tons of people that I knew that had had success with IUI. So I was just hopeful thinking rainbows at that time. Yes. Hopeful. Absolutely. And so post IUIs, we did three rounds of IUIs with no success. That's when my doctor suggested that we dive into IVF. And at that point, like, and I don't know if you want to get into the midst of this, but like, it's a financial commitment at that point. Absolutely. I guess a question I have for you about IUI is how did you, for for us, we did two IUIs and that Mm -hmm. was actually a requirement of my doctor, not my insurance. Our IUIs after our second, our doctor was like, look, that's not going to be it for us. We needed to go do genetic testing. So how did you decide to stop doing IUI? Because I know I know someone who did nine IUI treatments before. Yeah. And there's like a there's a lot of regulations around that. If you are filing with insurance, we didn't have fertility coverage. And so we didn't like cap out at anything or have to do a certain amount. Basically, what we discovered through the IUI process, and this was like the preliminary stages of us trying to figure out what our issues were, because we were unexplained for a really long time, is that, and Peter's probably going to kill me for disclosing all this about his little swimmers, but basically his swimmers weren't consistent through our IUI process. So we would have like one cycle where they would be great. And then the next cycle, they'd be bad. And then they'd be great again. And so our doctor just kind of came to the conclusion of, with IVF, you don't have to worry about having a certain amount of healthy sperm to be successful. And we can just take the healthiest ones and marry it with your eggs. So like, it's less of a risk, if you will, if you're willing to dive into that both physically and financially, because it is a large undertaking on both the female side of the body and the bank account side. Yeah, Um, I would say that that was a huge shock for me just thinking through oh my gosh, we're investing so much money, time, emotional stress, physical stress, you know, it just so much goes into the next process, right? Yeah. I think that with IUI, I didn't feel, and maybe you did differently, but I didn't feel like that was a huge stress on my body. You know, I I felt like, okay, mm-hmm. it's a it's a mental stress, right? Of course, it's emotional to feel like your body has failed you, you know, as a woman, why am I not able to conceive? Or for me, I was conceiving naturally, but wasn't having healthy pregnancies. And I, I remember feeling like, okay, I will solve these problems probably. Um, right. Again, back to that naive thing. But I think then, you know, now we're kind of getting into the the real goods of all of this, which is the IVF process. And mm-hmm. so kind of just talk through IVF in general, what the process is and, you know, then your experience from there would be awesome. Yeah. So the bulk of our journey, five-year journey really stemmed from IVF. So we got to this point, I would say one and a half, maybe year two, like roughly around year two. Yeah. Um, and the IVF process for those that are aren't familiar with IVF and are listening to this, the IVF process, like what you see in the movies is, well, let me back up. The IVF process is broken up into two cycles. You have your egg retrieval cycle and you have your transfer cycles. And what you see in the movies and like the the intake of all the shots and what you might know as IVF is probably what you're seeing in the egg retrieval section. And you're probably very unfamiliar with the transfer portion of it. I was unfamiliar. And like, I was shocked by like how long of a process it truly is. Like I thought, okay, one cycle, we're going to get this done. 
again, naive, you're going to put a baby in me and we're going to be pregnant in one fell swoop of a month. But really it's like a 90 day process to even get to the time where you're putting in your first embryo. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked by that. I was also super shocked by the concept for my doctor. And I don't know if this was part of your experience, but I thought it was so crazy. I'm trying to conceive and they're putting me on birth control. Yeah. And I was so confused by that. I was so confused by why am I, why am I being put on birth control? And after asking my doctor, it made total sense. They're just trying to regulate my cycle and understand what was happening with my body so that I could be prepared to start for my egg retrieval. So yeah. And something else that I found interesting that took me a couple cycles, like not to spoil anything, but obviously I went through a couple of frozen embryo transfers, which we can get into in a second. But something else that I was surprised by on the birth control aspect is a lot of fertility clinics do batch cycling. So that means that the doctor will take everyone that's going through an egg retrieval that month and get them all synced on the same cycle. So he can have like three surgery days where he's just back to back to back to back pumping out egg retrieval surgeries. So while the birth control, yes, is suppressing your hormones to get your cycle regulated. It's also to get everyone in line that's scheduled for an egg retrieval that month to be able to have an anesthesiologist on staff at that time and whatnot. Not every fertility clinic is like that. And I think Anna, yours wasn't right. No, mine wasn't. Yeah. But I do think that I still felt like there were very clearly other women on my cycle path because Mm -hmm. I will say like before my egg retrieval started and we were starting to do all the blood work with everything that you have to, you know, all the information that they need to gain from your body. I remember parts of that and I loved my clinic. Parts of that felt very much like, okay, we're all cattle here trying to get inseminated. And I remember thinking like, this is horrible, but you know, they tried their best to do what they could to make it not feel that way. But definitely there are Mm -hmm. moments where you're in line with the same women. And like Morgan, I had to do multiple frozen egg transfers as well. And I remember seeing women the first time go around and thinking when I didn't keep seeing them the next time I was there, like, oh my gosh, I bet that they're at their end of this journey and I'm still in it. Still Um, here. Yeah. Okay. So talk about the egg retrieval and then the FETs. Yeah. So I actually went through two egg retrievals. I had great success on the egg retrieval side, both times. I can't remember how many I got on the first time. I think it was like roughly 14, 15. So my issue didn't stem from being able to get eggs from my body, which a lot of people do suffer from that. Yeah. Actually, I had the exact same experience. My first egg retrieval is the same eggs that we're actually still able to have frozen right now. We had 23 eggs on our first retrieval. That's incredible. So yeah. So the first time I got like 14, 15, I can't remember. Ultimately through that process, I, we did genetic testing and we came out with six healthy Um, genetically tested embryos. So that basically for those that are listening that don't understand the IVF process, that means six shots or six go at it to try to get one child. And I think that that's another thing that I was extremely naive about when I started is when I found out we had six embryos, I was like, oh my gosh, we would never have six kids. Like, what are we going to do with all these extra embryos? I remember thinking the exact same thing. And I also remember thinking, and I remember talking to you, Morgan was definitely my cheerleader throughout my process. I remember talking to her and saying like, I don't understand. I had 23 eggs that were retrieved, 18 matured, 12 fertilized. And now I'm at five. Like I only have five healthy embryos. Like that, that part of that. And I think that that, for those of you that are listening, that experience infertility and are, have done an egg retrieval and you feel like, oh my gosh, how am I getting such low numbers? 
that's actually incredibly common. And unless you had told me that, I don't think I would have known. Yeah. So something that my doctor told me that I tell others that are kind of experiencing that and going through that emotional journey is he kind of set the groundwork for me up to expect a 50% drop off at every single stage. So like 50% from your egg retrieval down to maturing, down to making it to day three blastocyst, down to make it to five day blastocyst, and then a 50% drop from there for genetic testing. And I remember thinking the exact same thing, being like, what on earth? And that's why they pump you with so many drugs because they want to get as many eggs as they possibly can, knowing that that dwindling is going to take place. Right. I mean, I think that a big part of that is so reminding you guys, those of you that haven't had this experience or are thinking about this experience is you do a full set of shots and a lot of medication to have your eggs kind of your your eggs grow and have multiple follicles grow. Um, so that's a whole process on its own. And then the egg retrieval is a surgery, kind of. It's more of a procedure. Do you want to talk yeah. about it? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's something good to talk about because it was something that I didn't really understand either. So I I deem it a surgery. It's You go under anesthesia. Some clinics right. don't put you under anesthesia, but you're getting an IV. You don't have to have a catheter. I'm going to get gory here, but like people need to know these things. Yeah, You're going absolutely. under anesthesia. Um, you have an IV, you don't have a catheter and it's a quick surgery. Like you're in and out. I think within like you're, you go down and you're awake within an hour. Right. Um, absolutely. And it's an in, it's an inpatient procedure, but you go home that same day. Um, and you can't drive, like someone has to take you home, everything like that. So even if you're listening to this, because you're just trying to harvest your eggs and you don't have a partner, um, this is the part of the IVF process that you will go through to harvest your eggs and freeze them. Um, yes. And I want to chime in there on. Yeah. yeah. I just feel like that's, that's a big part of this that I think people don't think about. I had a friend recently be like, man, I just wish I could just have a baby. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like you have no idea how hard it is to get that many eggs, right? So like your frozen egg transfer isn't something that you're going to do until you have the desire to have the child. The egg retrieval part is definitely part of the experience that you're going to do, even if you're just freezing your eggs. This is something that a lot of doctors are recommending now because a lot of women like Morgan and I are having kids later in life. And so, um, you know, people are freezing their eggs early so that they can have better egg quality in the end, right? This means like, I'm going to freeze my eggs when I'm 34, regardless if I have a partner or not and have decided I want to have a child just so that I can make sure, okay, when I am ready to have kids, those eggs are still 34 years old, right? So that's a big part of it. And I remember thinking that, oh my gosh, this is taking us so long. I'm getting old, you know, and being actually really thankful when we had so many eggs after our first egg retrieval that were healthy because it meant, okay, if this works for our first kid, maybe we can use the same batch for our second kid. Yeah. So then like post-surgery, you'll head home, you're you're off of anesthesia, so you're kind of groggy. You've got to take the day to regroup. And I think something else that's worth talking about is the recovery post-egg retrieval. So there's two elements to a transfer. You can do a fresh embryo transfer, which means a pretty immediate like transfer, and we can get into the details there. Or you can do a frozen one, which would mean that you would get your cycle in between egg retrieval and then going through a frozen transfer. And you can do it at a later date, obviously. It doesn't have to be immediately following your first cycle. But the recovery from an egg retrieval process 
at least for myself, everyone's body's different, was pretty grueling. And they say that the more eggs you get, the harder your recovery is because you're poked and prodded more. And when your eggs are removed from the various follicles in your ovaries, those follicles then fill up with blood and fluid and create the sensation of like menstruation bloating. But it's like, on a next level. Right. Like for example, for a typical menstruation, you're dropping one egg. And for mm-hmm. me, I was now I had 23 follicles. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, am I ever going to feel normal again? The bloating, especially I felt like I was every time I took a step, it felt like an earthquake in my body. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty grueling one, but I will say it doesn't last for long. Like I think no. it was like three days worth three, four days worth. And I think my day twos for both of my egg retrievals were the most painful days. And the biggest piece of advice that I can give to get through those days is to hydrate yourself like liquid IV, everything like that. The more hydration you have, the quicker your body processes through all the hormones and sheds all the follicles. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anyways, fast forward to the FET process. So what you hear in terminology, there's so many acronyms when it comes to infertility is FET stands for frozen embryo transfer. And that is when they take an embryo out of the freezer and implant it into your uterus. And that is done via a catheter, but you're awake during it. And I was really nervous going into my frozen embryo transfer. I thought it was going to be really painful. And there's some pressure sensations, but like, it's nothing like you're in and out. I I felt the exact same way. I actually was super emotional. I wasn't necessarily nervous, but I was just like, oh my gosh, please, please, please make our baby. And it really is so beautiful. The concept of being able to, you get to watch on an ultrasound as they put the baby in and the catheter inside of you or not baby. It's not a baby yet. Um, (laughs) But as they put the embryo inside of you and it really is I mean, my husband and I were both crying. Both times we did it, we were both crying because it was just like, okay, please, please, please. I think the hope is truly there. The hope is totally, truly there. And someone told me, I didn't see it until my very last embryo transfer that took, but someone told me that there's this sliver and moment of time when you're in the middle on the transfer table where when they put the embryo inside you and it's like embedded into your uterus, there's a quick flash on the screen and that should be your like sliver of hope that this is going to work. And I never captured it until the one time that it did work. And it's like a moment in time that I'll never forget. So I'm just sharing that with the people listening because it's something really cool to look for. Absolutely. I actually saw it on both of our transfers and both of our transfers. We had a really tough road with our first after our first transfer, but they both took and I saw both of those little flashes of light. So I definitely feel like that's a great thing to look for. And if you don't see it, don't worry. It's not the yeah, end don't of the stress. world. Because <laughs> um, I did have a transfer that took prior to the boys and I didn't see it. So yeah, it's not the end yeah, of the world for sure. It's not the end of the world. So yeah, after seeing that like sliver of or the flash of light, it's just such a magical moment in time. But kind of what I've alluded to is we had a long road. We went through multiple frozen embryo transfers. Our first egg retrieval lended six embryos and we did five transfers with all of them failing, except for the last one, which I know, Anna, we might want to touch on this, but my last one resulted in an ectopic pregnancy. And we had tried pretty much everything but the kitchen sink of adjusting my protocol. And that last one, we did some fairly controversial in the IVF community protocols that included immunosuppressant drugs. 
And the reason that it's controversial is there's just not a ton of research behind it. So not a lot of doctors are adapt to jumping at utilizing it until like you're kind of on your last road. And that's a story for another day. But anyways, we threw everything but the kitchen sink at my last frozen embryo transfer and it, re- it took. So there was like a sliver of hope of like, oh my goodness, this is going to work for us. Like we finally found a protocol that worked. And then unfortunately it resulted in an ectopic, which is an emotional journey in and of itself. And I, Anna, I know you can attest to that. Yeah. How many weeks were you when you realized that it was ectopic? Like how far were you after your transfer that you guys learned that your uh, pregnancy had become ectopic? So my HCG levels after the two week wait um, were like it deemed a healthy pregnancy, but then they never, they would double and then they wouldn't double every 48 hours. And then they would double again and then they wouldn't double. So they knew something had to be up. Um, And at six weeks with IVF is when you can traditionally see a heartbeat or hear a heartbeat. So I went in for my six week ultrasound and there wasn't even a sack. So they were like, okay, well, she's pregnant because she has the HCG hormone in her body. Where is the baby? And that's when they started doing additional testing to see where it could be located. And it actually wasn't even in my fallopian tubes. It was in my ovary. See, and yeah, I think that that's this right now, what I um, we're about to talk about is the craziest thing about infertility that every person has such a different journey. Like mm-hmm. we also had an ectopic pregnancy after our first transfer, which by the way, we are both in the 1% of people. So it oh, is actually right. incredibly rare with fertility drugs and with an IVF transfer to have an ectopic pregnancy. We are truly like my doctor was like, I haven't seen one of these in six years. Like that's right. how rare it is. We're really, really, you know, truly both of us just got struck by lightning in the sense of both having an ectopic pregnancy while going through fertility treatments. Um, but for me, my HCG started low, but was doubling normally. And so HCG is the pregnancy hormone that can show that you're pregnant, by the way. And it's supposed to double every 24 hours for it to show that you're having a, a healthy pregnancy that's growing. And my HCG continued to double and so, you know, we were really excited, but it was low. So it was kind of this, our doctor said, hey, look, you know, you are pregnant, but we are starting really low. So you do need to potentially prepare for a miscarriage. We don't know what's going on yet, but you just need to prepare for that. And so we were, you know, very hopeful. Then our ACG was continuing to double. So we were stayed really hopeful. We actually went in for the six-week ultrasound they did see the sack, the embryo, but we couldn't hear a heartbeat. And so we were really confused. If I'm honest, it was like the most confusing experience of all time. I did have a pretty traumatic event where I started bleeding. I needed to go to the emergency room. And even in the emergency room, our, ER, our doctor was like, well, you're, here's your HCG level. Since my last blood test, it had doubled. I can see that you have the, you know, there's an ovum there. I can see that there's a baby in here with an ultrasound. And so it was really confusing because it was like, okay, I, you know, and she said, so you could have this bleeding. We're not really sure. And then we went in for a 10 week ultrasound because we were having so many issues. And that's when there was no, still no heartbeat, which was obviously concerning. And then that's when the ovum, there was still a a sac, but what had happened, so we were even 
more rare is our embryo had split and become twins and one of the ovums had um, attached in my fallopian tube. So um, at that point, neither one of the babies was going to be viable. And that's when, okay, this is an ectopic pregnancy. Both of these babies aren't going to make it. And it was earth shattering for us. I mean, I feel yeah. like that was really, really hard. And luckily I had Morgan as a friend to call and say, you know, I know you've been through this, but I would tell you an ectopic pregnancy, it, it is a very dangerous situation to be in because unfortunately it it can, you know, there, there is some risk of death for the mom. Yeah. And it's I think one of those that, things, Anna, and I know that you've been through a ton of miscarriages and much more than I have. I've, I've gone through three miscarriages, but I think across my miscarriage journey, it was the hardest one to grieve through and process because you go through the stages of knowing you're pregnant and it, it's no different than miscarrying, you know, at eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, even having a stillbirth, which I can't fathom. I've never experienced that, neither. but I think with ectopic, you have to make the grueling decision to abort the baby. And that is your decision you're making. Obviously, it's your body's telling you you can't have it, but you have to physically sign papers, take medication and do the duty itself, whether it's through a DNC or take the methotrexate shots. You have to make those decisions and abort the pregnancy. And there's so many ramifications with that. And we don't have to get into all that. But I think like when you think about an ectopic pregnancy, there's just a different type of emotional journey that you have to go through from a grief process as opposed to a regular miscarriage. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, like you said, we don't need to get into the politics of everything, but I will say it is a very terrifying experience. And I wouldn't tell, I would, I would tell you, especially those of us who have to go through fertility treatment, no one is looking to abort a child. Right. And I think that especially with when it becomes ectopic, it's now a a true medical emergency that you're Mm -hmm. in. And that's where it gets really scary. So I, you know, we're here to talk about healing. And I think that this is a great time to really talk about that. So do you feel like you were able to heal during the depths of your infertility? Or do you feel like you needed the space from the experience to start to heal? Yeah. So I think that that's a great segue into this discussion because I feel like I started my grieving process. I, I You have to talk about healing in the sense of grieving in my mind, because you have to go through, at least for me, I had to go through the stages of grief and the acceptance of like, I am dealing with something really heavy. And, you know, I was mad at first. I didn't understand at first. And then it was the realization of, okay, this is, this is my new normal. This is what I'm up against. And I I have to accept it and then embrace it. And I really, truly didn't start that grieving process until that ectopic pregnancy, because with an ectopic pregnancy, when you take this medication, you were forced to stop treatment for at least three months because you have right. to rid that medication from your body before you can start trying again. And it's really like a, like time is the greatest thief in all of this because you're racing against the clock constantly. And when you hear your friends having their third and fourth child, it's just the most defeating feeling. So having forcing yourself to stop and take the break is really when I started that grief process, I feel like. And I allowed myself the time to not only physically take a break from medication, but to mentally take a break and really start to process at that point, it was four years into our journey, really start to process what I had endured those four years. 
And I honestly think it was the most pivotal moment in our infertility journey. And I didn't realize it at the time. And it's so much easier to say now, now that we have a baby, two babies on the other side of this. But that moment in time of forcing me to stop is what allowed me to physically, mentally, and emotionally start the healing process. And I think that's what set me up for success our next go around. So spoiler alert, we did another egg retrieval post topic to get more eggs. And we had immense success in that go around. We we got 15 eggs, all 15 fertilized, all 15 made it to day three blastocysts, and all 15 made it to day five blastocysts, and all 15 went into a freezer. My doctor had never seen a hundred percent blast rate. So that just goes to show taking time to like physically, emotionally, and mentally heal really was a game changer for me and the success of this because it is such a grueling process. But to directly answer your question, I wasn't 100% healed until those babies were on the other, like earth side, because you really truly sit through pregnancy and you can talk to this right now. I mean, you're, you're living and breathing it. You sit through your pregnancy thinking, hoping, wanting, and freaked out every single moment of every single day, not knowing if you're going to still get a baby at the end of this. Um, So I really don't think it was until those boys were in my hands that I fully started to heal. Yeah. I think I love what you said about it. You had to grieve to be able to start to heal. I feel like You're grieving so much more than the loss of your baby. If you've had a miscarriage, you're grieving the loss of time. Like you said, you're grieving the what a shoulda couldas. You're Mm -hmm. grieving the concept of this is what I thought my life would be like. And at this age, Um, And I think that a lot of women experience that in different facets of their lives, but I definitely feel feel like when it comes to having babies, that's a huge one. And I, I agree with you. I feel like the time for me was not healing because I, after my topic, I was like, oh my gosh, like, let's just do this. Like, this is so frustrating for me, but I hadn't had as long of a journey, right? Like we got married and pretty much immediately we're like, we want to start a family, then we just had miscarriage after miscarriage. And that, so that was its own, you know, grief journey yeah. and healing journey and itself. But I would tell you that I have been able to heal through talk therapy, through meditation, through community. I mean, I feel like what mm-hmm. a blessing it is to have community in this space. And then also, like she said, I am pregnant right now. I do not feel healed um, as far as the potential loss, right? Like I keep saying, I just need to get to viability, like the viability point in pregnancy, because I feel like then I'll be able to be like, finally take a deep breath. Whereas a lot of women feel that when they haven't even experienced loss or they haven't feel that, you know, had to deal with infertility in generally a lot of women, anxiety is a big thing during pregnancy anyway, but it definitely, I feel like impacts you more while if you have experienced infertility, but we are able to heal eventually. And I think for us, I mean, I would say that Morgan and I are great friends. We are able to talk a lot and we have a community of people. Like I would say that's a big thing for me and something that I would love to hear from you is just like, how do you feel like you've built that community of people who have helped you heal? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that it largely stems from like, if you were to ask me what I wish I knew now at the start of my journey, and that really is, I wish I didn't know that I had to go through this alone because across my five-year journey, I really didn't start opening up. I opened up to like close family and friends probably 
year two, but it wasn't until like year three or four when I was in like the absolute thick of it, where I started like being pretty vocal about it. And I found that in order for me to heal and like process it, I had to talk about it. Like infertility becomes your focal point in life. It's really hard to have anything outside of focusing on growing your family when you're in the true thick of IVF. Um, and so, I mean, it is what I lived and breathed for so long. And then finally, when I started opening up about it, I realized that there are so many more people out there who have either gone through something similar or are actively going through something similar. And through that, I would get connected with a friend of a friend, or, you know, I know someone who also experienced this from this degree or whatnot. And that allowed me to not feel so alone in my journey because I really didn't know anyone when I started IVF. I had a couple of friends that had done IUI and had had success. And then there was a girlfriend we went to college with who did IVF, but she was successful in her first transfer. So I really not, I didn't know anyone that had done IVF and not had, had had multiple failed transfers. So anyways, the community kind of circling back to what you're asking, but the community that we've kind of created just by simply talking about things and trying to break the stigma that exists with talking about miscarriage and infertility has been a wonderful asset, not only for me and my healing journey, but also for me and my grieving journey. And also being able to provide positivity back into that community now that I'm on the other side of it is a really rewarding experience for me and in my healing as well. Um, So I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is you don't have to suffer in silence alone. And I wish I knew that earlier. Oh my gosh. Glory. Hallelujah. I couldn't agree more. I feel like obviously I had Morgan because Morgan and I have been really good friends since the start of college. And I knew that she was going through this, but I have met so many incredible women who I maybe knew in some other circle or, you know, I knew them because they were a friend of a friend um, or like they went to another college close by to our college. And like, sometimes we saw each other, but now have become friends and truly have become encouragers because I deeply believe that once you've experienced pregnancy loss or infertility, you truly become a sister in this. I mean, I don't think that anyone can understand it unless they're going through it. Obviously, if you're a really close friend to someone, you are our cheerleaders and our champions, but still there's such a big difference between being in the like dark depths of, I have to give myself progesterone shots every day and what is this, you know, weird bleeding that I'm experiencing or what is, you know, stuff that unless you've gone through it, you cannot answer it. And I think that that's a huge part of it too. Yeah. To just find people that are in it with you. I guess that kind of leads me to if you are not experiencing it, but you love someone who's experiencing it and you want to support them, how do you feel like you can support those people? And following that with, if you are someone who loves someone who's going through it and you become pregnant while you know that they're on their infertility journey, how do you feel like you can announce your pregnancy to them or share your pregnancy with them? Yeah, those are great questions. And I actually get that a lot from our community. I get it from people who are trying to support others going through IVF and they'll reach out to me and just ask like, how can I better support a friend through this? And then I also get the question of how can I notify a friend or let a friend know that I'm pregnant and go about that the right way. I think that let's kind of tackle letting your friends know you're pregnant because I get that question probably more than how do I support friends. And 
what I found, there's no right or wrong way to go about it. Actually, there's probably a lot of wrong ways to go about it, but there's no easy way to go about it, I guess I should say. And it's hard. It's hard on your end and it's hard on the person who's suffering from infertility's end. And what I found the most comforting, and I'm using comforting pretty loosely, was for someone to call me individually and let me know before they notified anyone in a group setting. Because you as the person who's infertile or yearning for pregnancy, it's really hard. It's hard. It's easier said than done to be like, I'm not going to let my suffering take away happiness from a friend. But there is a severe amount of jealousy that happens when someone else is pregnant. And there's a lot of heartbreak with it. There's a lot of grieving that you have to go through when someone else is pregnant. And so taking the opportunity to notify someone while they're alone and allow them the time to emotionally digest that information before announcing it in like a group text or announcing it at a family outing, like even if it's your sister and you're pregnant for the third time, that's something that I experienced significantly with my family. My sisters got pregnant super easily and my sister-in-law got pregnant super easily And then I was just kind of left waiting. And so like, even if it's a family setting, like do not announce at Thanksgiving, do not announce at Christmas. I know you want to enjoy this moment in time, but pull that person aside, let them know what's going on and then have your moment. Right. Or announce at Thanksgiving, but you know, call me on November 15th. Right. Give a courtesy phone call in advance. Yeah. And I think for me, something that I feel like is adding on to what you talked about for me, I so appreciated a text message instead of telling me in person because that allowed me the space to cry and not make someone else feel bad. And because that, that it was on my heart, like, man, I love my friends and I love that they're getting experienced this joy. And I am able to cognitively separate the fact that I am so happy for you and I am so hurt for me. And so making sure that I had that time to process on my own was really great. I mean, I remember one of my very best friends sitting me down and being like, I'm so sorry, I'm pregnant. And and I felt so bad that she was sad that she was pregnant, you know, and she had has now had two babies in the time that I've been trying, right? So, but it never felt like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she's having children. It felt like, I can't believe I'm not, right? Right. And I think that 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 was harder to, that's so hard to explain to people you love is that it's not you, it's me. It truly is. And I think it's also important. Right. And I think it's also important to remember that like you as the infertile, which I hate using that terminology, but you as infertile, it is just as hard for a loved one to know that they have to sit you down and send that yes. text message. Like it is a grueling process. And I, again, I didn't recognize that when I was on the other side of it, but I can only imagine what our friends have gone through with the two of us and they're all like babies threes and fours and so <laughs> on. Yeah. And we're like just sitting here trying to have our first, um, how many times they had to sit down and think through, how am I going to approach this with Anna? Or how am I going to approach this with Morgan? And I can't, fathom being on the other side of it. It's got to be just as hard. Right. Absolutely. And I think that it it's one of those things where if you are announcing that pregnancy to a friend or I feel like announcing it's it sounds weird, especially with I feel yeah. like second and third and fourth babies, it's kind of like, hey, yo, I'm having another one. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think it's just acknowledging that it's hard. And it's hard for both of you. And like we love you as much as you love us. And that doesn't make this easy. And I think to go back to 
just supporting your friends and your people through it. You know, I think something that was so helpful for me, and I know that, you know, Morgan has been able to do this for other friends too, is just sitting with people and giving them Mm -hmm. the space if it doesn't work. You know, I think that that's the other thing is like, you can go through all of this pain and heartache and it still not work. And as a friend, the best thing you can do is say, I'm here. I'm listening. I could never understand. And let's go on a trip. Let's go out to dinner. Let's do something. Let's do whatever you're ready for so that, you know, no matter what, I'm sitting in this space with you and that's okay. I think like my number one piece of advice when people ask, how can I support a friend? It is acknowledging and validating that this sucks and sitting in the suck with them and not trying to play the, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? I know someone oh my who's done this or have like, I mean, that game can go on and on and on. And when you're in the thick of IVF and you're at this point, you have tried literally everything. So the oh last thing you want to hear is, have you eaten pineapple core while sitting on your head and <laughs> or, you know, doing or, a handstand for 15 minutes post-sex? Like you, or like, just no. go on vacation. Just go on vacation. Yeah, Have a margarita. Relax a little bit, if you just relax Listen. a little bit, it will help. Like the amount, the amount of, of that I heard that. That's right. Call me too. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, like- it's just sitting in the suck with your friends. And then one other element that I found really helpful was the friends that it, once I started talking about things a bit more, the friends that took the time to acknowledge when I was in the middle of a treatment and make notes on their calendar of when an egg retrieval was, or when yes. I was going in for an ultrasound checkup or whenever it may be. And just sending that quick text in the morning of like, I know what's up ahead of you today. And I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you. I love you. And I know you can do this. And just reminding them their worth because your worth is shattered at that moment in time. And just reminding them that they're loved and they're valued and they're appreciated. And again, just sitting in the suck with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is so much to be said for the people who would just say, I'm here. I'm thinking about you. Because Mm -hmm. like, as you're going through it, you're like, holy cow, I am stronger than I ever thought I could be. And I think somebody said to me that you never know how strong you can be until you face something really, really hard. And Mm -hmm. I was like, holy cow, that is so that resonates with me more than anything is I can't believe that women and our bodies are as powerful and resilient as they are. And, and now it's our duty to just continue to advocate for people moving forward. Yep. I totally agree. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us reach more listeners, please share it with someone you know, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or a review. To see what's coming next, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Nick Finn Council or visit our website at finnegancounseling.org. Before I go, I'd also like to thank the people who made this project possible. My wonderful friends and guest experts who joined me each episode our production team at Three Wire Creative, our editor, Giselle Dixon, and the amazing leadership team and supporters at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center in Houston, Texas. Until next time.